Hey everyone, you're listening to the Her Head in Films podcast. I'm your host, my name is Caitlin. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, as I said, my name is Caitlin. I'm a writer, I'm a dreamer, um, I love literature, I love art, and I also have a really intense, passionate love for cinema. I live in a rural area in the South, in the United States, and so. I created this podcast because I don't really have anyone to talk to about cinema or or films that I watch. And so I needed an outlet to get all my feelings out. And that's what this podcast is. It's about my personal musings, my personal emotions and feelings about the various films that I watch. I tend to watch mainly um, art house, international, world cinema. And so those are the films that I am most passionate about. If you're um, a returning listener, I appreciate you, and thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I have something to announce. I started a Patreon page for this podcast to make it sustainable, and um, that's uh, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com. It's where people who are making podcasts, or who are writing, or who are making videos, they can create an account and your fans and your followers and your and all the people that listen to you and love what you do they can support you each month uh, monetarily and so I did that and I have all kinds of rewards available at different tiers for just one dollar a month you get access um, to special content including the Her Head in Films Extra podcast, which is like mini podcasts where I talk about um, different films and it's shorter. It's like 15 to 20 minutes. So if you just can't get enough of me talking about films, you can unlock that. And um, I'm going to be doing posts with reviews and recommendations and all kinds of other goodies that you can get access to. And then I have another level where you can um, you can vote on things that I talk about on the podcast. Um, I have another level where you can recommend a film to me and I'll review it on the podcast. And I also have a level where you get a shout out in the podcast. And so I want to give a shout out to Carolyn and Michelle. Um, I just want to thank both of you for supporting the podcast and and helping to sustain it. I really appreciate you and you're wonderful. So if if any of you are listening and that interests you, you go to patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. I'll also have the link in the description. And it's just a way to make the podcast sustainable, but to also, um, to make you feel part of it if you want to be part of it and, um, if you enjoy what I do. And, um, yeah, I just, I really appreciate all of you. Thank you to Carolyn and Michelle for supporting. Um, you're wonderful. (laughs) So, um, today's podcast is about, uh, the 1995 film La Ceremonie by Claude Chabrol. And, um, I'm going to talk about that today. It's a really great thriller about class and, um, I can't wait to dig into it. But first, Returning listeners will know that sometimes at the beginning of the podcast, I just like to talk about general things. And so yesterday, we've been having some bad weather. There was a tropical storm that hit one of the re- the one of the states near us, 
and so we've been getting a lot of rain and bad weather. Today we were under tornado watches, which was really scary for me. I, I really struggle with that. Um, but last night we had a power outage, and we lost all our power, and it was dark, and it was, you know, you, you don't realize how dependent you are on electricity until you don't have it anymore, and I just, it's, it's, it's a strange darkness when you have a power outage because there was no street lights, there was no, um, there was no light whatsoever. It's like this total suff um, smothering, suffocating darkness that, that happens and it was just, it was scary to me. I, I get scared with things like that. It, it just felt like the void you know and and like nothingness and it's just it's a scary thing to confront I think when all the things that you rely on are taken away and so it only lasted for like an hour so I'm I'm sounding too dramatic I know but every time we get that kind of a power outage or something it just completely destabilizes me but then this morning I woke up and I went on Twitter and um and it's Abbas Kiristami's birthday and Criterion Collection on Twitter posted this quote by him and I just really loved it and it seemed to really connect to sort of the darkness of last night and, and the fear but um but he once said he said in the total darkness poetry is still there and it is there for you and so I would sort of argue that that what I love about cinema and even though I don't go to a movie theater as much as I used to because I don't have a really great theater near me, it mainly plays the blockbusters and the commercial films that I'm not interested in, but when I did go to the movie theater, what was great is that you're sitting in darkness, but cinema is light. Cinema is the light in that darkness. And I know it sounds cliche. as You know, it sounds good in my head, and then I'm saying it, and it doesn't sound quite as um, smart. But I love that in the total darkness, poetry is still there and it is there for you. And I love poetry, I love literature, I love art, I love cinema. Those are the things that I live for and that make life worth living, along with my mom, of course, and love and, you know, certain connections and relationships that I have. But without those things, there is a complete darkness. You know, and I think what's gotten me through a lot of the really difficult experiences in my life and the ones that I continue to go through is what what are the light what is the light in the darkness for you? For some people it might be a book or it might be a person or for me it it's often been cinema and it's often been films and so I really love that I have this outlet to talk about films and to talk about why they matter to me and and um and hopefully maybe I can be somebody else's light in the darkness and maybe when someone hears my voice or or listens to my podcast maybe maybe it helps them in that moment or maybe it makes them feel a little bit less alone in the world and that's really all I can try to do and that's why I started the podcast and that's why I continue to do it besides my own selfish reason of just you know needing a way to express my feelings and emotions this podcast is very raw it's very personal and, and that's never gonna change like that's who I am and that's what I think is missing from the discourse around film 
is that I think online especially, but also in academia or whatever, I think film can be really saturated with theory and with really big $5 words and really big concepts. And I'm not against that. I'm not. But I don't really want to talk about those things. I want to talk about how I connect to a film, what I think is important in it. You know, I want to go on the level of the subjective and the personal and, and the sort of what hits you in the heart, what hits you in the gut about a film. So Kiristami for me is definitely a, a light in the dark too. and I really love his work and we lost him way too soon. I can't believe it's almost been a year. On July 4th, it will have, uh, July 4th, 2017, it will have been a year. So let's get to the main event, which is La Ceremonie. Like I said, by Claude Chabrol, came out in 1995. A thriller that's really about class, and that's what I love about it. So a little bit of background information about Claude Chabrol. He was a very prolific director. He was born in 1930, he died in 2010, and from the time he started making films, he made about a film each year. He started as a writer for Cahiers du Cinema, so he was part of the French New Wave, so he was part of the group of Francois Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard, Eric Romé, and he started on Cahiers du Cinema and then started to direct his own films and was very integral part of the French New Wave in the 1960s. He did a lot of thrillers. I don't know how many he did, but he did quite a few. Um, La Ceremonie is considered a late masterpiece. It came out in 1995, and as I said, he died in 2010, so it was one of his, you know, later films in the last 15 years of his life. The premise of La Ceremony is that a maid, played by Sandrine Bonaire, goes to live and work for a rich, upper-class French family in the countryside. She meets um, another woman, a postal clerk in the community, in the town, and the two of them start a very intense and interesting relationship. And before I go any further, I do have to say there will be spoilers. I want to be able to talk fully about this film, and I don't want to have to censor myself or think, oh, am I spoiling it? So if you haven't seen the film, maybe wait, see it, come back to the podcast. Um, if you have seen it, great. You know, If you don't mind it being spoiled, then go ahead and keep listening. So the postal clerk is played by Isabel Hubert, and so... The two women create this bond, they're both pariahs, they're both outsiders, and their bond ultimately leads to murder. It's a deadly bond. Um, so Sandrine Bonaire um, is a really, I think, a well-known French actress. She's certainly one of my favorites, and I really do adore her. I first saw her in a French film called I Knows Amour. Um, and that was when she was really young. She was like a teenager. And, um, but she actually has a history of playing very working class characters, as she does in La Ceremony. She plays Sophie. That is her character. 
Um, she was in an Agnes Varda film called Vagabond that was really successful and I think did very well for Varda. In that film she played a drifter, a homeless girl who is found dead due to exposure, due to being out in the cold. And it's the film goes back through her last few weeks and months and her life. And it's a very, I think, sympathetic portrait about someone living on the margins of society, which I always think Varda is really good at. Like, she did something similar with The Gleaners and I, and I love Agnes Varda. Um, Bonaire also did a recent film called Queen to Play in 2009 with Kevin Klein, where she played um, a cleaning lady um, who falls in love with the game of chess, but it's very much a film about... Um, working class life and working class struggle and and um I actually did a mini episode about it um for the Patreon page so it's for patrons only but yeah I really loved that film Isabel Hubert had worked with Claude Chabrol previously before she did La Ceremony she was in Violette and she was in Story of Women Story of Women is a really really good film where she played an abortion provider um at a time when abortion was still illegal in France, I think. So, it's a really good film. So, she had definitely had a history with Claude Chabrol. So, Sandrine Bonaire plays Sophie. Isabel Hubert plays Jeanne. And I'm going to use those names when I talk about the film. So, Sophie goes to work for um, this upper-class family. They're called the Lelev, the Lelev family. It's like this nuclear bourgeois family. You have the mother, the father, daughter, and son. And they're like teenagers. Um, they live in a very spacious mansion, you know, in, in the town. And um, they certainly have status and standing and, and resources. And so she goes to work for them, Sophie does, played by Sandrine Bonaire. But she has a really big secret. She has something that she's hiding. And it's in a really crucial part of the film, and that is that she is illiterate. She is perhaps dyslexic. It's not completely clear uh, what her learning disability is, but she is completely illiterate. And every move that she makes and everything she does is an attempt to conceal that fact from this family and to conceal it from other people around her. Sophie is someone who you can tell for much of her life she has felt marginalized, she's felt invisible, she's felt very much outside of of I guess like normal life in a way because of her illiteracy. Um, oh, and I forgot to mention that the ceremony is actually based on a Ruth Rendell, um, a Ruth Rendell book called Judgment in Stone. And a lot of French directors have actually, um, adapted Ruth Rendell's work. It's just very popular among the French. But, um, I have Judgment in Stone, and I definitely want to read it, but I didn't want to read it before doing this review. So... Sophie has this disability. I guess you I guess you could call it a disability. And um and it's it's interesting because she's working with she's working for a family who is exceptionally literate. They 
love to listen to opera music. Um, they are very cultured. They are very, you know, sort of your stereotypical or your just normal bourgeois upper class family. And um, she doesn't come from that world. She comes from a working class world. Obviously, she comes from an impoverished background in which perhaps she was not able to, um, she didn't get the education that she needed or she didn't get the help that she needed to learn how to read. And so, as I said, every movement she makes, she, um, she tells them that her vision is bad. She doesn't even drive because obviously she can't read the signs so they have to drive her places but she covers that up by saying oh I have vision problems she goes so far as to buy these like pink tinted glasses and to pretend like those are her vision glasses um, when they're obviously not um, and so when she needs to read something or if somebody hands her a piece of paper that she needs to read, she'll say, oh, I don't have my glasses with me, so I can't read it. Can you read it to me? And there's this scene where I think the the mother of the family leaves like a list of things that she wants Sophie to do. And Sophie can't read the paper. She doesn't know what it says, so she goes and she gets someone else to read it for her. So she has she has figured out how to navigate her disability while also feeling a great deal of I think shame about it because she does not want anyone to know I don't think she wants to be pitied I mean maybe that's part of it um, and obviously her illiteracy is probably the reason why she is a maid in the first place because obviously other professions are closed to her she's not able to do to perform certain jobs so it's easier to be a maid where you're you know making a bed or you're cleaning toilets or you're cooking those are things that you can conceivably do without having to be very literate so you see how her illiteracy has put her in a particular situation in life and the shame she has about it and the links that she goes to conceal it as much as possible um, so she's she's this very isolated person she goes and she lives with um, the family and they give her like a room up on the top floor and they give her a television that she can watch she watches a lot of TV she's she doesn't talk a lot she's not very gregarious she's not very outgoing she seems to me like someone her whole life who has tried to be as invisible as possible who has tried to shrink herself and not and and just sort of fade it's it's almost like she's not there in many ways and that's why i found the character to be really important to me because i'm interested in women like that i'm interested in women who are on the margins who are not able to fit into the mainstream or the status quo who struggle in some way um, and I think Sophie is that character and I saw this film a few years ago I watched it because I was interested in it I may have been going through my Isabel Hubert period where I was watching all her films because I love Isabel I love that she's getting more attention now more than ever because she really is a treasure I think and I liked the film 
I really did, but it was only when I rewatched it recently on Filmstruck um, that it really hit me that I realized the nuances and the subtleties of the film and how much it was about class. But it's also about disability, isn't it? It's also about um, this woman who is doing everything she can to, she's carrying like this secret that she's terrified of anybody finding out about and when her secret is revealed that is the catalyst for the violence that comes later on in the film so it's this very important part and it explains her she's just very lonely she's very alone she's very isolated I don't think maybe she wants to let people in and and Sandrine Bonaire plays the character so well like even the way she walks or the look in her eyes or there's just something vacant about her there's something absent in a way um, because she doesn't fit in and she is this outsider and and also when you're a maid obviously and this goes back to the class issue you have to behave in a particular way in a subservient way you have to be quiet you have to be submissive so her profession and her status and her class also forces her to disappear herself in a way to erase parts of herself because she can't talk back to the woman, to the lady of the house she can't have an attitude she has to constantly you know do whatever they want her to do you know she has to be pliable she has to be uh, pleasant and um, and make sure that she's not seen you know she eats separately from the family because that's just how things are done so she is always in this film someone on the the margin someone who is excluded someone who is there but not there I mean that's really part of being a maid or being or being a person in a service sort of capacity or a service position is that you're there but you're not there you're there in so much as you do what you're told to do but you are not really a full person to these people they just see you as the hired help they just see you as um you're just someone who's just sort of there and I think that's what Chabrol in this film is so brilliant is showing is that I think a lot of people would look and I read a review um, that sort of acted like the family was completely blameless that the family was just all oh, this really nice innocent family that may be true to an extent they were not beating Sophie they were not you know incredibly violent with her or incredibly cruel but there, what I loved about the film was it really showed the subtleties of class, of the way that people with money treat people without it. And I'll give you an example. Sophie is supposed to have Sundays off. And she asks specifically and tells the, the woman of the house, the, the wife, who's played by Jacqueline Bissett, she tells her that she's going to go off one Sunday and that she has things that she needs to do. Well, I think there's like a party or something or somebody's coming to visit. And she had already talked to Jacqueline Bissett's character about leaving early. 
and so the day comes Sophie does her work she prepares the food she sets everything up and then she leaves just like she told them she was going to well <laughs> Jacqueline Bissett just gets beside herself she's like well where did Sophie go where did Sophie go I mean it's Sunday it's her one day off probably and she just gets so upset about it when Sophie had already talked to her about having the day off she almost sees Sophie as this possession and her kids actually call her out on it or they'll or they call their parents out on it of why do you always treat her like a possession like she belongs to you or something and it is this subtle thing that that is done but the kids themselves are guilty of it too they have this sort of bred into them in a way or it's something that they have learned throughout their life there's a scene where Sophie and the daughter are sitting at a table and um I don't know I noticed this I don't know if anybody else would but they're sitting there I think she's looking at a magazine I could be wrong and I think she wants something the daughter wants something or something to eat or something to drink and she just expects Sophie to do it like she doesn't ask Sophie will you get me this thing will you get me something to drink or something to eat they're just sitting there and she just expects Sophie to do it she just expects Sophie to wait on her so even though the kids are sort of aware of the class issues and, and aware of of how their parents might treat Sophie they are not quite as conscious of how they treat Sophie so there are many examples in the film but they're very subtle and I think only if you're I think I don't want to you know make a blanket statement here but I think if you're someone like me who is from a very working-class poor background because that's just that's how I grew up my mom and dad did minimum wage jobs my dad worked um, he loaded trucks he worked at a place where he like if you see 18 wheeler trucks and stuff my dad would do like a hand cart or a forklift and he would um, he would load those trucks and that was his job my mom worked in a factory um, if you ever go to see she worked in daycares um, if you ever have seen like furniture uh, upholstery samples of fabric well there's somebody that has to put those samples of fabric on a card and that's what she used to do so my parents have always worked in factories or worked in warehouses at like minimum wage or maybe a little bit above um, I've had a lot of I've had minimum wage jobs I've had a lot of temporary jobs like not a lot of upward economic mobility you know constantly struggling you know going without health care I haven't seen a dentist in probably 20 years I haven't had health insurance for most of my life you know I don't get to go to the doctor I don't get to have regular screenings I don't you know if something is wrong with me I would have to go to the ER probably and I don't even know if they would help me you know so there's this always this sense of you're living this very precarious existence that you you don't have access to the same resources that other people have and you know you know consciously that you're probably not gonna live as long as people as other people with more money I mean that is the reality when you live in this country and when you live in a lot of places that do not have universal health care that does not have a social safety net 
you know that you're probably not going to live as long as other people because you haven't had access to health care since you were born. You don't have access to resources and things that you need. It's just, that's just the reality. So, and I also know what it's like to be in these interactions with people where they know that you're lower class, they know that you're poor or working class, and they're not. You know, I've been around wealthy people, I've been around people with money, and there is a subtle, there's a subtle thing there that you can't quite explain to people of how you are treated by people with money. And they may not mean to, they may not be conscious of it, but they act a certain way. And so when I was watching the movie, I was like very aware of how Sophie was treated by the family and the ways in which her autonomy and her freedom and her independence were circumscribed is what I would say. So Sophie is this very isolated and lonely person until she meets Isabel Hubert's character who's named Jeanne. Jeanne works at the post office and the two of them end up meeting, they end up connecting. I think the family goes on vacation for a little while and um, her and Jeanne end up connecting and becoming really fast friends. Jeanne has a lot of animosity towards the family. She vocalizes the class issues much more. She resents their wealth. She resents um, their status. Um, and all the money that they have. She feels that they don't treat other people right, that they have this attitude and that they look down on people. So Sophie and Jeanne become fast friends and they also share um, they share an experience with death and violence. Sophie may have been involved in the death of her father. It's not quite clear it looks like she may have been in, her father died like under suspicious circumstances I think in a fire or something um, I, can't, I can't be quite sure so don't quote me on it but um there was suspicion that Sophie might have been involved in it Jeanne um, was investigated for the death of her daughter and sort of I think at the at the end basically sort of confesses to killing her daughter perhaps accidentally perhaps on purpose so both of them are already sort of criminal in a way. They have already perhaps committed criminal acts that have further marginalized them from society um, because they are deviant. Both of them are deviant. And they sort of, when they come together, they become... Um, they become very different than they were when they were separated. Although Jeanne is very, she's much more gregarious. She's much more outgoing. She's much more, I think, influential and manipulative and devious. Um, and Sophie, with her sort of submissiveness and her placidity, uh, comes under the spell of Jeanne, I would say. 
you know, she she starts to do her hair like Jeanne. Jeanne does um, braided pigtails. And after her and Jeanne become really good friends, Sophie starts to wear her hair in braided pigtails. They watch TV together. Um, they connect through through the violence that they both may have committed. And they also connect through class, as I said. They're both working class women. Jeanne works at the post office. Sophie is a maid. Um, and they both pick up on the subtle ways that the, the rich people treat poor people. There's a really uh, good example of this with Jeanne. Um, and once again, I don't know if people watching it will pick up on it the way that I do. Um, but it's something that I definitely did notice when I was watching it. There's this scene where I think the daughter, her car breaks down and Jeanne offers to help her. Um, or wait, is it the reverse? It might be that Jeanne has broken down, that her car has broken down. And the daughter offers to help her. Yeah, I think that's more of the of the dynamic there and so the daughter is she goes and she looks under the hood and she does something and then the car starts up again because Jeanne's car is very old um, of course because she doesn't have a lot of money and the, and the daughter her hands are, are dirty and she goes to Jeanne's window and Jeanne gives her like a handkerchief to wipe her hands and then after she's after the daughter is done wiping her hands she throws the handkerchief at Jeanne like just throws it in her face um it's like this moment where I was like oh my god like I don't know if other people would have picked up on it I don't know if it was just me but I was like she just threw a dirty piece of cloth at this woman like I thought it was so rude I just thought it was it but the daughter does it in such like a cavalier thoughtless nonchalant way and I think it's indicative of the way in which this family acts towards everybody that they see as below them that they just act in this very nonchalant way they just expect Sophie to do everything they just uh you know they I don't think they're blameless is what I'm saying I, I I think that because of the culture that they live in that values the rich and gives the rich ridiculous power over other people that they have learned a certain way to act and it's very thoughtless and it's very harmful I think and you can see that tension that class tension and that class conflict um yeah it's subtle but it's there and i don't know if everybody picks up on it the way i did but i'd like to talk more about the friendship between sophie and jeanne they share that working class aspect they share that sort of criminal deviance they really are in many ways unruly women I'm reading this book by um, Anne Helen Peterson and it's called Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud. 
and she writes a lot about unruly women women who transgress boundaries women who overflow boundaries really and are sort of excessive and and subversive and and they don't fit into these little categories that we expect of women and i would say that jeanne and sophie are definitely unruly women they are their friendship is born out of a shared class struggle a shared class position a shared history of hurting people for whatever reason that they want to hurt people and it's all the more shocking because they're women and it's not seen as acceptable for women to act in a way that is violent and I'm not condoning the violence of this film but I'm saying that it comes from a place that it doesn't come out of a vacuum and it doesn't exist in a vacuum Sophie and Jean are very much troublemakers they when they get together they just start to luxuriate in in making trouble and being deviant and subversive and like there's this really great scene near the end of the film where <laughs> Jeanne is the ringmaster here I mean Jeanne is she propels the film I think she is the propulsive force of this film I think if Sophie had never met Jeanne then everything would have gone just fine and she would have just kept living her very sort of empty isolated lonely life in a way you know because she's there and she's not there and she is basically invisible to the world but when she ends up with Jean it's like fireworks it's they become really close friends like there's this amazing scene where they're sitting in Sophie's uh, room and they have their arms around each other and their hair is both braided in pigtails and and they're sitting on the floor watching TV and it's like they almost look like twins in a way it's like they become one another almost reminds me a bit of Persona a bit by Ingmar Bergman that great scene where Liv Allman and B.B. Anderson like their faces merge these women are almost like mirror reflections of each other and they become that and and it reminds me of like a lot of books that I've read and a lot of films that I've watched about women who murder women who commit violence together how when two women come together I'm specifically thinking of heavenly creatures that film um, about two young girls who murder one of the young girls mother um, the mother of one of the young girls it's like uh, separately they probably would have just gone on and had ordinary lives but together the emotions and the the I don't even know how to put it into words but like I remember when I had a really close female friend when I was very young and how when we were together it was just everything was heightened everything was magnified and we almost lived in our own little world the way they did in heavenly creatures and it's almost like Sophie and Jean create this world for themselves 
or they start to exist in the real world in a way in which they do not believe in rules or boundaries. So they're going around, they're getting donations for the church, and Jeanne goes into this old lady's house, and the woman is giving her the donations, and Jeanne's like just plops on the floor and is going through the bag of donations and it's like nope not this why are you giving this to the poor why are you why are you giving this junk to people um and the woman is horrified she's like what are you doing um but i actually thought this was a sort of defiant moment in terms of the class conflict is because I've gone through really difficult periods of my of my life and one time this was right after my father died probably I don't know I don't know how long it was after my father died uh, he passed away in 2006 and it plunged my mother and I into poverty and we were really struggling and to make ends meet and buy groceries and, and just survive and I remember that we had gone to or no they came to us yeah like oh god it was like Christmas and these people just show up at our door with like this box of food we had not even asked for I think it was a family member or something that had told I guess a church or something about us and they just show up and and they just are there with this box of food and like we have our Christmas tree up and the woman comes in and she's like almost shocked I guess that we have a Christmas tree or that we decorated for Christmas <clears throat> I guess we weren't properly poor enough or something like you have to almost perform in a particular way when you're when you are poor and not have anything um, ever and just I still remember the shame of the moment like of these people with this box of food and and none of the food went together I mean it's like it's a can of corn it's there's no meat there's no there's no way to make a meal out of it there's it's just the most random food that like nobody if you got to go to a grocery store and pick out food you would not necessarily pick out these things or just a few years ago we were really in a bad place. I had lost my job. My my mom's husband had lost his job. And we had to go to a food bank. We had to go to this church to get food. And um, the things they gave us, like the bread was hard as a rock. There was expired food. There was things that weren't even labeled. Like it was just meat in a in a package and you know when you go to the grocery store there'll be like labels on it you know to tell you what it is it was just meat I guess in cellophane there was a jar of pickles I think and it didn't even have a label on it it could have just come from someone's house it was the most random food the paste they gave us like these pastries that were like inedible you know they were just too old like you couldn't actually eat them it, they didn't give us good meat they didn't give us things where you could make a meal out of it they didn't give us things that we could actually survive on you know like we ate a few of the things that we got and then we had to throw the rest of it out and it made me feel like dirt <laughs> and it made me feel so worthless like I wasn't even worth you know feeding right so and I still feel the shame of it.
And so when Jean is going through these donations and saying, well, why would you give this junk to anybody? Nobody wants this. She's saying, why would you give poor people something that you wouldn't even want? Aren't the poor deserving of something better than that? Why are you just giving scraps to people? Why are you giving things that you don't even want and that you don't even think is good and you're just giving it to the poor like like they don't even matter like they don't even deserve decent clothes you know or, or decent items and so I actually saw that scene as sort of kind of exhilarating in a way I was like yeah go to Jean you know because people just and it's the same thing with food I'm making an analogy here you know that the the food that people donate is like some of it is not even edible anymore or it has an unknown source if you wouldn't eat it if you you know why would you give it to poor people but that's what we do you know that's what happens to poor people so I actually saw that moment as sort of really interesting of her saying well fuck this <laughs> this is terrible stuff why are you donating this to the poor and I thought it was kind of funny and I have to admit you know I found something just really interesting about these women and I know that I think we're probably supposed to be repulsed by them or horrified by them um, but because of the element of class in the film they're actually I think saying something through their actions their violence at least against this family is out of sort of a shared sense of being wounded a shared sense of being treated less than and um, wanting to fight back against that in some way you know these are women who are very much on the outside of society they are not acceptable women especially Jeanne I mean even the townspeople like I think she killed her daughter in another town and then she was moved there I guess to escape the stigma and the controversy about her killing her daughter and um but it it taints her it still taints her and so she is very much a pariah even more than Sophie is and she is someone who has crossed a particular boundary you know through murder through killing her daughter she is someone who is not really bound by the dictates or the rules of society she is excessively unruly and excessively deviant you know um, in the eyes of other people This film, the relationship between Sophie and Jeanne, reminded me, and I think the film was inspired by this too, of the Pappen sisters. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of the Pappen sisters. There's been quite a few adaptations of their story made. They were maids in France, and they killed the wife and daughter of their employer in 1933. Their names were Christine and Leah and there was rumors that they had a sexual relationship there's been a film called murderous maids that has uh, Sylvie Testud in it that was made like in 2000 I think I haven't seen it there's another film called sister my sister 
with Jolie Richardson. I have seen that one. It was very interesting. Jean Genet wrote the play The Maids about the Papin sisters. And so they're, they're this, they are this huge obsession, I think, for a lot of French writers and French intellectuals because a lot of people felt that their actions were motivated by their treatment as maids, their treatment as a lower class, and they were striking out against their employers um, because they worked very long hours. They didn't, they might have got like a day or a half day off on Sundays. I think they gouged the eyes out of, of their victims too. Um, so La Ceremonie is, I think, in part, perhaps, uh, inspired by that, and perhaps Chabrol took Judgment in Stone by Ruth Rendell and then merged it with the story of the Papin sisters. Um, so, I mean, if, if you've seen the film and you're interested about this relationship between Sophie and John, then you might want to check out those films or... Or learn more about the Papin sisters. That's P-A-P-I-N. Um, they have always fascinated me. And I've like... <laughs> I think there was like this biography or this book about them. But it's like so expensive. I've always wanted to read it. Because they definitely interest me. Like this is a theme in my life. Of like murderous violent women. I, I don't know why. It's just... I think that... I think when you have these really high-profile cases of women killers, whether it's the women of Heavenly Creatures, which one's Ann Perry. Ann Perry was one of the girls. She's actually um, a crime writer and a mystery writer now. But when she was a teenager, she helped kill her best friend's mother. But she was released once she became an adult. And I can't remember the other girl's name. But, um, or like recently I was watching some documentaries about Eileen Warnos, who was a female serial killer here in the United States. It just feels like to me when we have these really high profile cases of women killers, is that you really see gender expectations and gender norms play out. And you see the way women are covered by the press and the media, the way they're talked about, the way they're written about. And you see how how frightening it is for people to see women who commit violence, um, because women are supposed to be nurturing and and pleasant, and women are not supposed to get angry. Women are not supposed to feel rage. Um, we are sanctioned if we do that. We are seen as bitches and and all kinds of negative things when we have unruly uncontrollable emotions but what's even more interesting for me about female serial killers is how their crimes often come out of the consequences of sexism and gender expectations for example with Eileen Warnos her murders come out of of her being raped by one of her Johns. The first one was a man named Mallory. His last name was Mallory. And people theorize that this is why she started to kill men is because she was with the, she was a prostitute and she was 
you know, with this man, and he raped her, and violated her, and was very violent with her, and she lost it. She just, she fought back. And what's interesting about this Mallory man is that previously he had spent 10 years in prison for rape. So, her, it gives credence to what she says happened. And Wernos is someone who came from poverty, who was sexually abused and violated from a very young age, who had a child when she was 13 that she had to give up and was thrown out of the house while in Michigan in the wintertime, sleeping outside, sleeping in cars, sleeping in the snow, sleeping in woods. This is someone from the time she was born, she was abandoned, she was used, she was abused, she was treated like she was nothing. So society damages and destroys her. Men use her and rape her and violate her. And so that's that's where I think those murders come from. When you hear about women killers, they rarely say, oh yeah, I just loved it. I just enjoyed it. It often, it may come from an abusive relationship. It, it may come from all kinds of different sources. For the Pappen sisters, it may have been connected to class that they were treated so terribly by their employers. I'm not saying every instance of a woman killing is justified or that it's, you know, that she did nothing wrong or it's always somebody else or there are absolutely women that commit horrific violence and I'm not condoning it, you know, but I'm saying that in some instances women are okay stop that sometimes that violence has a root and the root is is connected to society the root is connected to sexism the root is connected to classism um, or to racism or to other forms of violence that are uniquely perpetrated against women sometimes so and I think with La Ceremonie, that violence, the, the violence of the ending where Jeanne and Sophie kill the family, it, it, like I said, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It was this accumulation, this buildup um, of animosity, of tension, of feeling like they were treated less than. Although there's an aspect of the crime and of the murder that sort of subverts that reading in that there is a pleasure that these women take in killing. And perhaps that's a projection of people's fears about women killers is that they get off on it and they love it. And they, I think of Carla Faye Tucker and she was another, I don't know if she was a serial killer, but she was a murderer. And, um that women get can get pleasure out of violence and how people are not prepared to see that like we see it all the time with men we see men who just love violence they just love it we see it in movies we see it you know we see men doing violence but when women do it we're very uncomfortable with it and it's very disturbing at the end like i said i'm not condoning the violence i myself I'm like a pacifist and I, I hate violence I don't I don't believe it is 
acceptable. You know, I don't condone any kind of violence, really, unless it is self-defense, unless you have no choice, you know, and you have to do it. But with the ceremony, the ending, there is a sense of pleasure, especially with Shun. Shun loves it. She, while the family is listening to this opera down in the living room, Sophie and Shun are almost anarchic. You know, it's it's anarchy. It is like, it is the um, the liberation of any kind of. Um, what do I want to say? Any kind of anything that was holding them back, you know, from violence, or they just completely let it go. They are completely out of control, and at the same time, completely um, exhilarated and euphoric and ecstatic about going into the family's bedroom and uh, tearing up their clothes and and pouring hot chocolate all over the bedding and it's just they just love destroying the house before they destroy the bodies of the family um they are getting off on it in a way even even sophie enjoys it she's laughing she's there's no fear there's no remorse there's no anything it's um it's a sense of pleasure it's a sense of excitement it's a sense of um oh this is fun it's like this joyful thing that they're doing and they're murdering people and so in a way it's also maybe chabrol is commenting on violence on and i don't want to make this connection but i think it's very interesting that the tv is so prominent in this film sophie's always watching tv and Jeanne watches it with her. And I wonder if Chabrol is maybe trying to say something about how television desensitizes us. How, I mean, not that Sophie is watching violent things on the TV, but it's just maybe something to think about. Um, like, how how do people commit these acts of violence and and feel nothing? I mean, maybe it's it's a look at violence itself and and a commentary on violence itself. Like, I just finished a book called Human Acts by Han Kang, and it's about um, a real-life event that happened in 1980 in South Korea, which was the massacre of hundreds of students um, who were protesting the government, and they were murdered. They were murdered by soldiers and by the government, and her book is about that act of violence it was also the some of the kids some of the students and the people were rounded up they were taken to prison they were tortured so it's a book that is deeply concerned with violence and with the way in which human human acts human acts of violence affect human beings and human bodies it's about death it's about grief it's about trauma trauma to the body trauma trauma to the mind and i came away with a bigger question about violence itself about how do you take a gun and murder someone or take a bayonet or take a knife how do you torture somebody how do you enact violence on another body? How do you rape someone? How do you 
do these things to another human being. And I watch a lot of crime shows. I'm going to be honest here. I watch Forensic Files constantly. Every day I'm watching Forensic Files. I've seen every episode multiple times. I watch Dateline. I watch 48 Hours. I watch The New Detectives, which is on Netflix. And it's like an older show from the 90s. I only watch true crime, though. I don't watch things like CSI or um, Criminal Minds. I don't watch things that dramatize or fictionalize it. I watch the true stuff, the documentaries. And I think that maybe that's why I keep doing it is because I want to know how do how does another person commit violence against another person? Because I'm someone who's deeply sensitive and deeply like I don't want to physically hurt anyone and I'm someone who's afraid of violence. I've never had it committed against me the way some people have. And I don't know how I would handle it. And I just think that is the constant thing that I ask is like how do you do this and the ending of La Ceremony is graphic. It's difficult to watch. No matter what you feel about this family and about the class dynamics within the house and the subtle ways in which Sophie is treated as property and treated as less than, um, no matter any of that, when you see Jeanne and Sophie take a shotgun and murder these people, you are sickened. I mean, you're shocked. You're seeing these people lay there bleeding and they're laughing and they're loving it and um and then there's this huge twist at the end where they've been watching the opera but the daughter or the son set up the boombox to record the opera off the TV and that that boombox records the entire murder and um it it, it it captures the gunshots and the moaning and, and then of course Sean and Sophie talking to each other and and taking joy in it and, and loving what they've done and you see these two women and you don't understand them and they remain throughout the film very enigmatic very unknowable and mysterious in a way because you know that they've had prior incidents with violence but you're not quite sure why they're doing what they're doing. It could be tied to class, could be tied to a lot of different things, but you never, and I think even now when it comes to killers or, or crime shows or whatever, I think that is the question for a lot of people is why people want this motive. They want to know why. They always want to know why somebody murdered another person. And I wonder, do we ever really know why? Do we ever really know the motive? And also, do we ever understand the how? Of how do you cross that line? How do you go from being someone who is law-abiding, who, who has not taken a human life, to crossing into the person that takes another human life? What has to happen for you to get to that point? And I think with Jeanne and Sophie, Chabrol obviously gives us no answers, no easy answers. These are women who remain unknowable 
I mean, Sophie is inscrutable always, even at the end, even at the end. And I thought it was so interesting, Sandrine Bonaire. I, I wonder who chose her haircut because the bangs that she wears, and if you see the film, you know, it's, I almost thought it was a master stroke, like, to do her hair that way because the bangs are very, very short and there's something very blunt about them and very strange about them and and they're jagged and they're it just seemed to perfectly go with the character and Sandrine's face is very almost hollow she looks like she's maybe lost some weight and her her cheeks are sort of sunken and and she just has this whole appearance of someone who just doesn't fit you know and doesn't like I don't even know what to say it's so hard but it's just Sandrine played that character perfectly and of course Isabel Hubert you know was amazing as Jeanne and but even at the end you know you see her face and after everything after after Jeanne's driven off and died Jeanne gets in a car wreck and dies at the end and they find the recording and Sophie is just walking walking down the road you don't know if they're gonna capture her if they're not where she's gonna go what she's gonna do I mean she's probably gonna get captured she's probably gonna go to prison and for what why did she participate in this act of violence obviously she felt she maybe the point is that she felt nothing like maybe both of them were, were people who were just felt nothing like killing a person is the same as like eating breakfast it's there is no differentiation there is like a nothingness to them in a way sort of an emptiness like a vacancy like I think Sandrine really brought that through with Sophie it's like when you look at Sandrine's eyes like there's just this vacancy there there's nothing behind behind it there's no soul almost and of course what were the conditions to create that in her the illiteracy perhaps the poverty the loneliness the marginalization the invisibility the being treated less than by people working for people that wanted her to be subservient and small and and disappear and not be there unless they had a need that they needed um, met so there's all these things that I think for Sophie have have numbed her in a way and perhaps deadened her emotions or her feelings and and maybe killing the family is is her way of I don't know of getting retribution of, of a reckoning of some kind of and like I said it, the catalyst of it is oh God I totally forgot to mention this that the daughter finds out that that Sophie is illiterate that Sophie can't read and the daughter just handles it pretty well she's like well we can get you reading lessons we can we can do that but then again it's such a patronizing sort of condescending thing oh well we'll get you lessons we'll we'll help you that's the one thing that Sophie doesn't want she doesn't want pity she doesn't want 
to be condescended to. She doesn't want to be treated, you know, differently. And she certainly didn't want anybody to know that she was illiterate. And so that really seems to be the catalyst for all this because she threatens the daughter. The daughter's like, oh, well, it'll be okay. And she says, if you tell anyone, you know, I have dirt on you. The daughter's pregnant. She hasn't told the family. She's like, well, I'll, I think she calls her a bitch, perhaps. And she's like, I'll tell the family that you're pregnant. You know, so she's, she becomes very upset and almost violent in terms of her language and her words that she's blackmailing the daughter and she feels exposed I think she feels I think maybe all that shame and all that everything that she has felt related to her disability or her illiteracy comes up and perhaps she's worried that the family would tell the next people that she wanted to work for um, so it all sort of bubbles over in that moment of her secret being found out because her entire life is about guarding that secret and making sure that no one ever finds out that she's illiterate and that she can't read and once it's out and once they know she can't really cope with that and she has to lash out and she has to I think destroy them and she takes pleasure in that destruction. Yeah, I don't have all the answers about this film. I think it's masterfully created. I think it's certainly a masterpiece for Chabrol. For any director that would have put this together. The script is meticulous. Um, like I said, there's so many subtle issues about class in it. And about... The interactions between John and Sophie and the family. Um, there's so much there to talk about. There's so much there to unpack. Um, I don't even think I've scratched the surface. I've just done my best to give you an idea of why I love this film and why I think it's like a masterpiece. And I'm not sure why more people don't talk about it. I do think Chabrol was a fan of Hitchcock, like a lot of the Cahiers du Cinema writers and directors were, along with Truffaut especially. Um, and this had a Hitchcock feel in the, in the sense that it was a thriller, but I love that it sort of took another, sort of a deeper, a deeper look at class especially, and gender, and violence. I think in the end it's also about violence and I don't know if I've articulated it as well as I would have liked to and, and put all the strands together. I mean I may watch this film again in the future and see completely different things but I'm just trying to share what I saw in it and what I found really compelling about these two women who form a deadly friendship and who are very much outsiders and pariahs and yeah I think I've said everything I can say about it um yeah but I do thank you for listening and uh, I hope this episode was helpful or interesting or whatever <laughs> I definitely hope so I just really love this film and I definitely would recommend it and 
and I watched it on Filmstruck, so that's where I found it. But anyways, I will stop here. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, until next time, keep watching great movies. Bye for now.